Welcome to The Working Therapist with Hayden Bolick, a podcast designed to help you grow more, do more, and be more as a therapist. The Working Therapist is an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. We're glad you've joined us for today's podcast. So here's your host, Hayden Bolick. Hey everyone, and welcome to today's episode of The Working Therapist. I'm Hayden Bullock, your host. Today we're talking about doing something to get something, which can be translated into the speech-language world of communication initiation, but that doesn't sound like very much fun, so doing something to get something sounds a lot better, because functionally, that's what it is. Basically, what we're talking about is how little people... And when I say little people, zero to two years of age, my favorite people in the world, how this develops and then how you evaluate and treat working with kids on communication initiation, how you basically teach children and parents how to do something functionally to get what you want. Because a functional communicator is not a person who tantrums. You can get some results pretty quick by screaming, but you can't really be that specific in telling people what you want. So we see kids who aren't talking. Of course, we at pediatric developmental therapy, we provide speech therapy to children who aren't talking, obviously. But this issue in terms of communication initiation is the um, kind of the cornerstone or foundation. You have to figure out why kids aren't talking. And to do that, lots of things could be the problem. Now, if you're an occupational or physical therapist, I mean, you're thinking, oh, this is just for speech therapists, then hold back for just a second, because you're also seeing the same kids that we are. And if a lot of our little people, you know, may have trouble with gross and fine motor issues, and the OT and PT are seeing them. But again, for them, they're not talking either. And so there's things in here that I think will be helpful to anybody, because a child who cannot communicate effectively is going to do something. They're going to tantrum, they're going to lose interest, they're going to walk away, they're going to not relate to people, not respond. So it would behoove anyone to listen to this podcast so that they can understand how better to help a child functionally communicate. And also one thing I'm going to talk about is sensitivity and consistency, because sensitivity and consistency, say that 10 times and see what you come out with, is key to communication initiation. And what I mean by sensitivity and consistency is how sensitive the listener or the facilitator is to those child's communicative attempts and how consistent they are in responses. So as a physical or occupational therapist, if you are sensitive to a child's communicative attempts, if you're, for example, working with a child who's got major gross motor impairments, they're not talking, they maybe can't use their hands or to make gestures, to do sign language, they might not really even have enough facial movement to try to even make a sound that would be resemble like a vocalization or sound like a word of approximation, then sometimes just body gestures or how sensitive you are to body movements or body positioning or even just like maybe facial grimaces or anything, head movements can really communicate a ton. But you have to be a very sensitive partner and then consistent in how you're responding. Because if a child constantly moves their body in a certain direction to like, for for example, this is an easy one, but you know, a child who sees an open door, it's a child sitting in a wheelchair who doesn't have any words and isn't able to communicate verbally, and they see an open door, if they start rocking their body back and forth, you probably are going to think, well, this child may want to go outside. But an adult uh, communicative facilitator may not, if they're not sensitive to that child rocking 
and I've seen this happen a ton, then they may think, oh, well, they're just rocking. They're getting excited. They might not even be paying attention to the open door. And the fact that the child's looking at the open door, rocking back and forth, they want to go outside. So if you're sensitive to that and then you consistently respond the same way, they start rocking back and forth and they see the open door, you take the child outside, then the child's going to eventually figure out, hey, when I do this, I'm going to be able to go outside. You know, one plus one equals two. It's pretty simple. So an OT or PT needs to also learn, as do speech therapists, how to be, as do parents, how to be sensitive and consistent. It's key to good therapy and treatment and working with kids on communicative intent. So the first thing we're going to jump right into is talking about language development and a quick and dirty overview. This is, like I said, the quick version. We've got a podcast that we did on knowing normal speech and language development where we go to much more in depth on each stage of language development and give more specifics about it. But this is the quick and dirty version. So here we go. The perlocutionary stage of language development is the first stage. This is the stage for kids zero to eight months of age. And basically in this stage, the child's not intentionally communicating. They're not doing anything to get at something. They're just crying, and the parents attribute intent to the child's actions. So if the child's crying, then parents kind of give those cries meaning. And eventually those cries start to vary in how they sound. And, you know, I've gosh, I was with my sister-in-law a couple weekends ago, and I have a like a seven-month-old nephew, and he started crying. And she said, oh, well, that's a hungry cry. And a few minutes later, he was crying. And she said, oh, that's a sleepy cry. And I honestly, I couldn't tell the difference between the two of them. But she completely understood. And she was right because <laughs> he ate and then he went to sleep. So she must have been right. But basically, parents in this stage of language development, they start to interpret the child's cries and give those cries meaning. And for a child whose parents respond often and consistently to those cries, the child starts to learn, oh, well, if I do this, then I'm going to get that. This leads to the next stage of language development. But a child whose cries aren't responded to then eventually that also can lead to language delays because they start to figure out, well, I cry doesn't do any good, so I'm just going to stop crying. The cries aren't responded to, so I'm just not going to cry. And that can lead to language delays. So these responses by the parents are the first best example I've got of being sensitive and consistent. And when parents are sensitive and consistent at this point in language development, then the child learns and it builds to understand if I do this, I get that. If I do this, I get that. If I cry, these people come running which is usually what happens. And that leads to the next stage, which is illocutionary stage of language development. The stage of language development is between about eight, nine months and 12-ish, give or take, months. And this stage is characterized best by children who are using communicative intent, but they're not using words. They're just using vocalizations and gestures. So kids are waving bye-bye, hi, they'll use facial expressions, they'll use clapping, they play peekaboo, they cover their eyes, you know, play peekaboo. They change their behavior in response to emotional reactions of others, and they imitate sounds and actions, but they're not really using using words to get something yet. The next stage is locutionary stage of language development, and this stage is characterized by children actually using words to get what they want. So they are initiating with words. You know, if they say go, stop, no, you know, then this is the whole, like, no, mine, you know, this stage. And the kids are really understanding if I do this, I get this, and they're using words to say it. But they're mostly the words they're using are initially sort of those basic first words, me, my, no, 
stop, mommy, daddy, those types of words. So from these first single words, then phrases are built and then sentences and so on. And there you go. And that turns into a whole like dissertation. And then they turn into teenagers and they just never stop talking. And then there you have it. So that's our language development, quick and dirty. But if you want more, like I said, go back to our other podcast. Now let's get into the fun stuff. I talked about the development stuff and the schooly stuff. I want to talk about what this podcast is really about, which is helping a child move from the perlocutionary stage of language development to the illocutionary to the locutionary stage. So basically, this means moving a child who isn't initiating or communicating at all to a child who is initiating with gestures and vocalizations to a child who's initiating and communicating with words. That's what this whole thing's about. First thing you need to do, though, is figure out what stage of language development are these little people in. And that's key to everything, really, for all of speech and language therapy. For a child who walks in the door and is about 18 months to two years, it's key. I got to figure out which stage of language development they're in because it determines for me how my whole entire therapy session is going to be framed and it frames how I'm going to write my goals. Because if you're not doing something to get something, that's the main problem. That's what I'm here for. That's what I do for a living. So I got to figure out what stage you're in. And the first way I go to do that is I get a good birth history from the parents. Now, here's how I sort of set the room up. Parents walk in my therapy room. I go out in the waiting room, get the parents. Hey, how are you? Can we come back with me? We come in the therapy room, and I've usually got one toy sitting out. I don't crowd the room with tons of toys. My like, go-to toy in this situation, if a child's about 18 months to two years of age, is usually like the Fisher-Price farm. It's interesting enough that the child's going to want to play with it for a few minutes. It gives me about five to seven minutes to ask and get a birth history, but yet it's not going to crowd my room up, and they're going to get bored with it after about five to seven to ten minutes, and they're going to want to move on to something more fun, which is what I've got, and so I can move on past this toy pretty quick without any kind of major fusses. Now, I'm not saying they don't ever happen, but typically nine out of ten times they don't. So my big thing is I'm going to get a birth history, and I'm going to find out from the parents milestones, what's significant in their medical history, what's not. But I'm also going to ask, what does the child currently do at home to get something? What do they do? If they want something, and I ask this question all the time, if their toy that they want is sitting up high and they can't reach it, what do they do to get it? And the parents always have an answer. They know exactly what they do. They either tantrum, they reach up and reach for it, they come get the parent's hand and they take the parent to it. They might use a word, but usually the parents know exactly what they do. And so I need to figure out how are they requesting at home. And then the next thing I do is I'll play with the child. Now, normally I will have some kind of functional test in there, like a standardized test. I might do part of the PLS-5 to start with. I might do the real. I usually like to start with a PLS preschool language scale 5 because I can interact and play with the child. There's some toys. The real, again, I'm just sort of asking questions to the parents, not sort of. That's what I'm doing. And I'm not saying there's not the place for that. But I want to kind of get in and functionally figure out what this child is doing. And I like to play with the child. But sometimes if I just start playing, the parents look at me like, is this really what you do for a living all day long? And even though what I'm doing is not really playing with the child, there's some method to the madness there. But the PLS-5 just kind of frames my play a little bit, which is nice. But my usually go-to toys, in addition to the preschool language scale five, are the bubbles. And I like the bubbles in an evaluation that have the screw top kind, not the bubbles like the no-spill bubbles. So I usually have the bubbles with a little screw top. I usually have a ball run. And what I mean by ball run, batat makes the one that I like the best. It's B-A-T-T-A-T. And there's four little colored balls that sit on the top of this little rectangular box. And you push a ball down through a hole and it goes down a little maze and comes out the bottom. I call this a ball run for lack of a better name. 
I also have wind-up toys. I always have wind-up toys. And I usually have about four or five different wind-up toys. And I'll have like a push-and-go car. And the push-and-go cars are not the pull-back-and-go or not the shake-and-go, the push-and-go. So you push down the top of the car, and then it goes. And then the last thing I love to have, but I'm afraid to even say it, are balloons. Now, hold back. I don't ever give a balloon to a child. I never let them put them in their mouth. I don't even let them hold the balloon in their hand. I keep the balloons in my pocket, and nobody even sees them until I pull them out. But a balloon is a really good toy to evaluate communication initiation. It's also, let me just say, a choking hazard, and there is zero chance that I will ever give a balloon to a child or a family. I never let them carry them out of the office. I have them in my possession all the time, but I do use balloons. And here's what I do with them. The first thing you do is you've got to set it up. And it's real important to set it up. And remember, my therapy space is pretty empty now. I've got this Fisher-Price farm, and I've moved it to the side. And we've told it bye-bye, and I make a big deal out of telling it bye-bye, and I've moved it to the side so the child knows we're not going to play with the Fisher-Price farm anymore. So I reduce the clutter, and I put the toys away that I'm not using, but it's only the farm. Then I have all these other toys in their own individual containers but with a lid on the box. So to get out the bubbles, we open the Tupperware box, and I usually knock on it. And I make a big deal about opening the box. Then we open it up and I get the bubbles out. And then I really try to not talk too much during an evaluation in this part of the eval. Because I just need to figure out what the child is processing receptively, kind of what, how much information is too much information. And I don't really know that yet. So I really got to figure it out. So I, I want to decrease my talking so that I'm just telling them what I need them to do so that I'm able to assess if they can follow directions. I can assess if they understand simple phrases, if they understand simple words. There's a lot of assessment I'm doing without really anybody knowing I'm doing it. And I also tend to, if I don't think they're processing what I'm saying, if I don't think they're understanding it, or if they're not really paying attention and they're not interested in me or the bubbles I have in the box, I'll sort of use a sing-song, what I call like Mr. Rogers' voice. I don't know, for those of you who are older like me, you remember Mr. Rogers on TV. He had this nice sing-songy voice, and it was all very melodic and nice and easygoing and flow. And that kind of voice will sort of help kids, you know, sometimes pay attention a little bit better. It changes things versus if I'm talking like this, and then all of a sudden I go into a different type of voice that usually will stop and pay attention a little bit more to me. Or at least I look to see if they are. But anyway, so usually I'll get the bubbles out first, and I'll set it up. And I set it up the same way. And I'll get the bubbles, and I'll open them, and I'll show the child that I'm opening them. And I'll go one, two, three, go. And then I'll blow the bubbles, and then i close them up. And I'll say, do we want more? More bubbles. And I'll open them up. One, two, three, go. And I'll close them up again, and we pop the bubbles and blah, blah, blah. I said I do it like this way three times, exactly the same way, every single time, the same cadence, the same words, the same kind of voice, intonation, everything. And then when I know I've got the child's attention, though I know I got the child. Like I got them right there with me. They are locked into these bubbles, buddy. They are into it. They're icon, well, they don't have to be eye contact, but I know they're paying attention to me. They know these bubbles. So the next thing I do is I open the bubbles. I have more bubbles. I open the bubbles. See my Mr. Rogers? More bubbles. Open the bubbles. One, two, three. And I pause. And I have a pregnant pause of probably about two to three seconds. And I wait and I go one, two, three. And I kind of look like I'm getting ready to blow. Like I've got the bubble thing right in front of my mouth. I made the big 
puffy cheeks and I'm getting ready to blow and right before I blow I freeze and you know you got the room meaning the parents from the room you know you've got the child if you almost can like feel somebody in the room going go lady go (laughs) and you look and the look on my face is very expectant like just tell me to go little dude or girl that's there and I will go. And so I look and I pause right there to see what the child will do. Now, are they going to touch me to go? Are they going to, uh, you know, make a noise? Are they going to lose interest? Are they going to look, some kids I'll do that and they'll immediately lose interest, walk away. Sometimes I'll go, ah, uh. sometimes they'll smile. Sometimes they'll laugh. Sometimes I'll say more. Sometimes they'll hit my hand. Sometimes they'll say bubbles. So based on their reaction and what they do, I know exactly where they are. I know if they're a prolocutionary communicator, an illocutionary communicator, or a locutionary communicator. And that's like gold mine, baby. You are there. So then you got them. So then you do it again. Now, if the child did nothing, say they looked away and said they were like, I'm out. You then you quickly do. You don't want to lose them, so you quickly do more and or go. That's the word I use. Go and you blow the bubbles, and then you set the whole thing up again. One, two, three, go. Blow the bubble again. One, two, three, go. Get their interest back, and then do it and see if you can do it again. And then do the pregnant pause again to see if you can get them back again. If you can't get it with the bubbles, then I do the balloon. Because let me tell you, that balloon, and I do the same exact thing with the balloon. One, two, three, and then I blow the balloon up. I hold it. I don't tie it. And then I'll, you know, let it go, and it flies all over the room. And I'll grab it up real quick before they can. So make sure your reflexes are quick, and you got to be mobile, just FYI. If you're nine months pregnant, maybe not want to try that because you'd be less mobile. Tried that. Been there, done that. Didn't have a balloon at that time because I couldn't get up and go so fast. But I'm not now, so that's fine. So that's something you may want to consider. The balloon, kids love that. Now also the wind-up toys. And I'll do the exact same thing. One, two, three. And the toy's already wound up. I don't wind the toy up at go. I already wind the toy up, and I'm winding up as we're talking. One, two, three, go, dog cat, fish, whatever the wind-up toy is, it doesn't really matter, go, and then I'll make sure it's on a surface where it can go. And then when the whole wind-up toy winds down, then I'll do it again one more time. And I'll do it, I usually do it always three times, and then I'll hand the wind-up toy to the child. I'll say, what do you want? And then if they do nothing with the wind-up toy, if they throw it, if they just lay it down, sometimes they'll hand it back to me. Hand it back to me is initiation. It's an illocutionary response. If they go, uh, another illocutionary response. So let's talk about those for a second. Like prolocutionary responses. The kids that walk away, they lose interest. So if you get doing the bubbles, if they look away, if they run away, if they immediately lose interest and they could care less what you did with that bubble, they're like, whatever. Then they're a prolocutionary communicator. And so you know, they don't understand if I do this, I get that. So you know right there. That's where I am with the stage. If they are a prolocutionary communicator, that means those are the kids, again, that looked away, they ran away, they lost interest in the bubble and the wind-up toy and the balloon. They really could care less about that. You might have had them for a split second, but you didn't keep their attention. They're not into it. Then you know that they don't understand. If I do this, I get that. They haven't got there. And you know when you write your goals, that's where you are. That's where you got to start because that's the main problem. But they're not understanding. If I do this, I get that. So that's where you are. Usually for these kids, if they're 18 months 
two years of age, two and a half, and they're still a perlocutionary communicator. Remember, a normal language development, that zero to 18 months, then I take a serious look at that receptive language because I've yet to see a child that's a perlocutionary communicator at two, two and a half, and their receptive language is normal. I've never, never seen that. Usually, those kids, their receptive language is probably severely delayed, and then I, of course, do not diagnose something like autism or anything like that, but those kids are usually what I call red flag kids for something more global going on. I don't know what it is, but those kids at this point, and I can have my educated guess, and I can have my thought process. I may or may not think it's autism, but usually they have a more global language impairment going on. Sometimes they were born very prematurely, and there's a definite language processing comprehension issue involved. Anyway, but those kids, you know, when you're writing goals and when you're talking to parents about them, sensitivity is going to be huge. These are also, let me put in a little this little thing. These kids are also what I call periphery kids. They play the periphery of the room. These kids usually don't get involved in like in a classroom situation. They don't come into the classroom and come into like the middle where the kids are playing in circle time or in center time. They just sort of run the periphery. You see them walk the edges of the room. They don't really get that involved because they don't really understand this do something to get something yet. It just confuses them. And people out there in the world, like other kids and stuff, it doesn't make sense. So this is what I call periphery kids. They run the periphery of the room. So that's where you are. You also have to figure out for these kids, these, these are fun kids. Oh, these are some of my most favorite people in the world are this stage of language development. These kids, you've got to find what I call their M&M. Personally for me, I love an M&M. I love some chocolate M&Ms. They're my favorite candy. If somebody says you want a treat, I'll take an M&M. And I do a lot for an M&M. You know, what will you do for a Klondike bar? Mine's what will you do for an M&M. I love M&M. So you got to figure out what is their M&M, what motivates them. So that's when I start asking parents, okay, what do they love at home? What's their most favorite thing? Do they like movies? What is it? Is it music? So whatever their M&M is, you got to figure it out so that you can use that for motivation. Not that every time they do something good, you're going to give them an M&M. So if, for example, I've had this happen before, a child loved a certain movie. Well, I had the movie going. I'd play like a 20-second clip of the movie, and I'd stop it. And then we'd say, do you want more movie? And then we'd sign and work on more movie, and I'd play another 20-second clip. And then stop it. And so each time I'm sort of helping them understand, oh, if I want more, I do this. If I want more, I do this. So you got to find their M&M. You got to find, and hopefully there's more than one thing. And sometimes that takes a couple of sessions and some work with the parents to figure out a couple of different M&Ms. But anyway, now the illocutionary kids, how do they respond? They're usually the ones who grunt, grin, smile, these are also the kids who go from like zero to 180, meaning like they're at zero, they're fine, happy, and 180, they're laying on the floor screaming. And there's not one tear. They are not hurt. They're not even sad. They just scream to get what they want because these kids are smart because screaming and tantruming gets you what you want very, very quickly. Because if the child lets out an ear piercing, ah, most people jump. And they come running, and they're going to fix whatever that problem is. And so these kids are the 0 to 180s, is what I call them. And y'all know exactly who I'm talking about, but they're the screamers. There's no crying. There's no tears. They're fine. They just want what they want when they want it, but they're not using words to get it. And so the trick to them is you got to teach them to use words and start with a gesture. But sometimes for these screamers, it's hard work because screaming is very 
effective way of communicating. Not very specific. So if you wanted grape juice instead of orange juice, then, you know, your screaming is not going to really help you get grape juice over orange juice, which, again, just causes more tantruming. But it does make you get some juice or something. Those The trick for these kids, now these kids receptively usually are pretty on the mark because they understand a lot. They know what they want. They're just not using words to get it. So those are my little two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old, 18-month kids that are screaming to get what they want. And those are the ones that did something to get something, but they didn't use a word. The locutionary kids are the kids that use like bubble, more, mine, or they said a word when I did the pregnant pause. They said a word. These kids are the one, though. Then for these, you have to evaluate, again, receptively. What do they understand? What do they know? Usually for these kids, then I start trying to figure out play. How many toys are they combining in one play routine? Are they just putting one toy together? Are they understanding to put, like, stir the food and feed the baby? That's a two-step play routine. So then they're comprehending for two words or three words or three steps in play. So their comprehension is putting two or three steps together in play. So they understand to put two or three words together. But are they using two or three words? together? If not, then that's where you need to go in therapy. So think about for those locutionary kids, though, if they're only using single words. Now, remember, these are the kids that are putting two or three steps together in play. You've tested, you look at their receptive skills, they're combining objects in play, and they're understanding two or three steps. It doesn't mean they're understanding two or three step directions. If they're combining a couple objects in play, like stir the food, feed the baby, put the blocks in the truck, push it over somewhere and dump the blocks out, you know, multi-step play, functional play. So they're ready and they're understanding probably three words together in a sentence, but they're not using three words together in a sentence. But remember, you got to figure out for these kids, are they using nouns? Or are they using any verbs at all? Because you can't make a sentence without a verb. So then in therapy, you got to do a couple of things. Number one, you got to make sure they're understanding or comprehending, identifying pictures and objects. You got to also make sure they're understanding verbs. And you got to make sure they're initiating using single words. So you want to expand that spoken vocabulary and receptive vocabulary. And you want to expand their use of verbs and then combine nouns and verbs to make a sentence. So that's a very different type of therapy than your little illocutionary screamer dudes. So sometimes kids with ear infections will end up at the locutionary stage of language development. Sometimes the kids that are real severe ear infection kiddos, meaning like they need their adenoid, they're the ones I call like the Darth Vader breathers. They <laughs> sound like that because, which I'm sure that was fun to listen to, but those kids tend to have enlarged adenoids and tonsils and a lot of ear infections. And those more severe ear infection kids, you know, they're really not hearing that great because they've probably been consistently gunked up with ear infection, gunk and mucus and everything else nasty. Those little kiddos aren't hearing that great. Plus, they don't feel very good. I mean, think about how bad they feel, and it's consistently going on and on and on and on and on. So those little illocutionary people probably are more severe ear infection kiddos. The locutionary kids probably can have severe ear infections as well, and that can definitely impact their language and speech development. But they may have maybe a little less severe. They probably have some periods of time where they could hear adequately without a lot of extra fluid where they could hear, but maybe it wasn't a consistent or a long period of time like that. And so they've got a few words, but they don't have many. A lot of times I'll see two, two and a half, three-year-old kids coming in with like five or 10 words and they have a history of ear infections, recurrent otitis media. And so they need to see an ENT, but they also need to see me because we need to work on 
use of words and all that other stuff I just said earlier, because I hope you're paying attention. Okay, so that's part of what happens at the end of a speech and language eval, and where how I'm using communication initiation to sort of plan to evaluate the child and sort of plan their goals and what I need to work on. Okay, so that kind of is the ending point there for therapy and the eval. And then next week will be our therapy discussion. So don't you always hate it when you go to continuing educations and the person talks continuously about evaluation and they never talk about what you do? Well, stay tuned for next week, folks, because I'm going to talk about what you do. And that's the fun stuff. So I appreciate everybody hanging out with me and listening to the discussion about evaluation and framing your plan of care and writing your goals and getting your sort of framework down. And then next week, we're going to start into some therapy and what you do with all this info. So that's a good teaser as I've heard of any of them. So let's go with that. Thanks everybody for listening. And I'll catch you next time on another episode of The Working Therapist. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Working Therapist, an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. If you would like more information regarding this podcast or would like to get in touch with us for any reason, visit us on the web at www.pediatricdt.com. That's pediatricdt.com. 